0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back. Run Your Mouth Podcast. I am back solo in the apartment because, uh, sadly, the shed people, they all got COVID. That's what happens when you spend too much outdoors. You don't even have a house to live in. You're just shacking up in a shed, nine-family unit, all together without internet, having to just do nothing but make conversation. You're doomed right from the start. No, uh, luckily nobody is uh is all that ill but you know we're uh we're on, we're on shed hiatus shed hiatus for probably the next 2 weeks as um you know their family gets ransacked from plague and hopefully comes out okay on the other end no uh mike's 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 papa uh you know got a little bit of the coronies luckily he's all healthy and fine i have the honor of getting myself my first ever uh, test. I don't know if you guys have been tested, uh, if you've gone to these test sites and I want to talk about it because the procedure makes zero sense to me. They're talking about this virus being airborne. They're talking about how, uh, contagious it is, how careful you need to be to avoid any exposure. And then in order to find out whether or not you have the virus, everybody who might have it all goes to the exact same place and then rolls down their window Uh, Shoves a thing into their their nose to then expose the viral load that was living inside their nose into the air. And they sit there for a couple minutes and then they drive along and then you drive up to the exact same spot. There's no disinfecting of the air. There's no UV light or something up above. Uh, No, you just roll down your window into the exact same spot. Uh, and then shove a thing up your nose, and I don't know how to shove things up my nose, I'm not a nurse, I didn't go to shove things up your nose school, I mean, sure, it's not like I've never put anything in my nose, it's not like I've never, I'm not a big nose picker, it's not, not one of my, uh, I got a lot of bad qualities, picking my nose is not one, maybe I should pick my nose more, you know, every once in a while, someone's got to point out to me, like, you got a hanger, I'm definitely that person in life, where, you know, people are just like, dude, you got, And when I get a hanger, kind of a long one you know it's not it's not like a thick one it, it kind of it, it droops a little bit and it's on the end you ever get a whistling booger those are fun where you don't even know that you have a booger until it starts uh until it starts whistling i think mad magazine made this joke that uh Do you really, because if I ever picked my nose, and I can't even tell you the last time I picked my nose, that's how you would think, like, because picking your nose is one of those things. You don't even want to do it when you're home alone, because if you just start getting into that nose picking, it's only a matter of time before you're out in public picking your nose. Like, if you're you're a nose picker, you're going to be a nose picker. You know what I am more of? I'm more of a uh, sleeve... I'm more of like a sleeve swiper, you know? You'll even see, sometimes I'm part of the problem. I'm, I'll, I'll swipe in my nose with the sleeve. I don't know that that's more, uh, I don't know that that's a better approach to it, but, you know, sleeves are kind of like built-in napkins for your arms, uh, if, unless you're one of those hicks that likes wearing no sleeves on your shirt, in which case you don't have any napkin options. But me, if I don't have no tissue around, I wear my long-sleeve sweatshirts. This is very snot absorbent. You can, you can absorb a lot of snot into these things before people realize that you're just walking around with contagions on your sleeves. Anyways, back to my tale of uh, getting tested for the coronavirus for the first time. And I think uh, maybe i got to boost these levels a little bit. But anyway, see, so you got to go to this spot. You got to roll down your window. It's not like they're that quick about it to make sure that you're in and out within 15 minutes. And then the lady, it's a CVS. She's like talking you through a thing, trying to tell you instructions, but you can't hear her. So you got to yell back. What are you talking about to just breathe in more of that viral load? That's just hanging out in the air. Uh, and then, uh, luckily within 24 hours, they actually got back to me. They let me know that I'm Negative. I do not have the coronavirus, which is uh, good to know, except that I probably picked it up while I was there. This is the most fearful I have ever been through this entire pandemic about possibly having the thing. And I want to say the only reason I went to get tested is because I'll be going skiing next week, which I am looking forward to. Uh, Three days, going to be going up to... uh, What's the name of the mountain I'm going to? It's up in Maine. It's the big one. Never been there before. I think it's called... I can't remember the name of it, but, you know, if you're up in Maine, you want to get in a day skiing with me and my friend, hit me up. I'll be up there for three days next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, hitting the slopes, and I don't know what else I'll be doing. I hope it's not uh, too shut down over there. But, you know, I'm excited to hit the slopes, and I figured if I was going with friends and I might have been exposed, I better go get myself checked. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten checked. But, you know, I did. I did the responsible thing. I got that negative result, uh, and now hopefully, you know, the the Shedcast people will all persevere. Um, you know, they'll get through it, and then they'll have the energy to actually hook up internet, and then we can be back to recording in the shed. And while we're talking about that, let's uh, quickly thank our sponsors. Yo Kratom, home with the $60 kilo, and sheath underwear, the only underwear that will uh, separate your dick from your balls. So, you know, if you're at home with the coronavirus, and you gotta lay in bed, and you're all sick, you're not feeling good, at a minimum... You want to be as comfortable as possible, and if you're rolling around in your bed because you got fever or some shit, you don't want your dick and balls just flapping around over there. I once watched this episode of uh, Venture Brothers, which is one of my favorite television shows ever made. I don't know if you guys ever watched Venture Brothers, but there was an episode of Venture Brothers where the Venture Brothers um, had gotten finally captured by the Monarch, and they got their balls twisted. And he was forced to release them because of the Guild of Calamitous Intent. They have rules. If you're capturing your enemies and their balls get twisted, you've got to release them. So after all these years of him trying to get his revenge on Dr. Venture, he finally captures their son. And sadly, he's got to let them go. Ever since then, I have been fearful that my balls could be get twisted. That was one of those things that the second I saw it, I was just like, I wish he hadn't told me about that. Man, do I wish that I didn't know that your balls could get twisted. And ever since then, every night when I go to sleep, because like I said, before I met sheath, before I became a sheather myself, I used to be wearing boxers. My dick and balls, you know, were just free to hang loose, to hang. uh, I mean, there's not that much hanging going on, but just uh, it's my podcast. So stick with me here. So what I would start doing is kind of like, because I'm wearing my boxers, I'm not going to be wearing tighty-whities. That's ridiculous. Never really liked the experience of briefs. I would cup my dick and balls. Like I would kind of like, you know, grab the fabric and, you know, secure them to ensure because I'm a side sleeper. And if you're a slide sleeper, you've got to be the most at risk. If you've got like a droopy, you know, if like your left nut is hanging um, a little bit more than your right nut, and then you're lying on your right side, Think about it. Think about it. It's not that much for that for that ball. I hope you're getting terrified right now. It is not that much for that ball to start traveling and start circling, you know like how the planets, they like to revolve around each other. Think about it, you're on your side, your left nut, it's hanging out on your right nut, and it just starts creeping over a little bit, and then the next thing you know, it starts picking up a little bit of steam, and then boom, your balls are twisted. Tell me you're not cringing right now. Tell me that you aren't horrified, and that's why sheath came through. So you don't need to cup your balls before you gotta go to sleep. You don't have to be concerned that what happened to the Venture Brothers might happen to your nutsack. You don't need any of those concerns. You rest your balls, on the sheath shelf. That's the shelf for your nuts. You you stick your dick in your dick hole and you can go sleep on your side and rest easy. I don't know if sheath is allowed to make medical claims that their, um, sheath shelf will protect your nuts from circling around each other. And I don't even know it was a cartoon. I don't know if that's even a real, uh, thing that can happen to your nuts, but you know, anyways, sheath 20% off Use your promo code RYM. And, uh, Hopefully we drive enough sales that the uh, shed can afford internet and then, you know, we can start broadcasting to you. Although I will say I'm pacing around in my room right now and I kind of like that, but I'm also getting out of breath at the same time and it makes me feel like a real fatty, but that might actually, uh, incentivize me to, you know, stop eating as many sandwiches. Uh, but all right, next topic. Cause there was a next topic, um... You know how comedians, they like talking about bombing on stage and how much it hurts when you bomb on stage? Let me tell you, bombing in real life is way worse than bombing on stage. Like, when you tell a joke that's inappropriate, you know, in front of, like, a party or something, or you say something that you shouldn't have to someone and they're never going to talk to you again, that might sting more. That didn't happen to me, but I did go on a date and let me tell you, I bombed this date. Old Roberto over here has gotten a little bit rusty from quarantine. Not that I had a lot of game, you know, when it's not like when New York was open, it was nothing but a plethora of pussy just knocking down my, my door, a parade of pussy all the time, a party of pussy was none of those things. But um, the Corona environment uh, definitely makes it a harsher environment is all the little tricks and tools i have to seem like a normal person they're gone they they don't exist like you can't go to uh you can't go to a movie and then look you're saved from talking you can't go watch live music and then you're also safe from talking there's no entertainment you have to be the entertainment and you can't go bar hopping so that you get a bunch of drinks in you so that you come off as normal or you're able to move around a whole bunch because i'm a shifty fella i mean i'm pacing around right now the last thing i want to do is show up to one spot just sit down and eat dinner i don't do that like normally, that's not that's not fun for me. And then all of a sudden you got to do that. And now you got to make conversation. I mean, you guys enjoy listening to me, but I don't even think you would enjoy me at a formal dinner at a formal dinner. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this energy in a restaurant? You're just hearing me rant about the, the Fed and interest rates. and Now everyone's going to die. That's not going to go over well. Um so, <laughs> good lead. Friend uh, Friend set me up. He had the world's greatest pitch for uh, getting set up. He said, listen, I know this really hot chick, I don't think she would possibly go out with you, but um, if she says yes, are you in? And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, if that's the case, of course. Uh, and lucky for me, I got to do a better job of cutting highlights because before anyone goes out with you, they're Googling you. It makes sense. Apparently what came up when she Google searched me was an old run your mouth bit. You got to have to go far into the archives for this one. But, um, it was probably a year ago. The last time I was on a date, maybe even a year and a half ago. And some dude asked me to take off my hat and, uh, I was unhappy about that because that was back before I'd shaved my head. And uh, it was like, you know, it was, it was patchy up there. It was not a site that you wanted to show off if you were on a first date. That was a, that was a sheer cock block. Anyways, this lady came across that clip, still agreed to go out with me. I'm talking about being short, bald, making sex jokes. This a, is this a good lead. Um, texting, things are going well, but then hour and a half drive to Brooklyn. So I've been sitting in the car. Now I got to pee. I end up pissing in some random person's bush. It's the best I could do. You don't want to be showing up to uh, the house of a date and you got to pee. But by the time I got there, you know, I had to take a shit too. Now we're in a real situation. I'm picking up this lady and we're about to go to a restaurant and you got to find parking. Lesson learned. On a first date, never be in a situation where you gotta find parking with someone. If you're in the first 10 minutes of trying to make conversation and you're trying to find parking at the same time, that's a bug out. Think about how much yelling you do. Maybe you're more normal than I am and you're calmer about finding parking, but think about parking while you need to take a shit. Think about the angst of that while trying to make casual conversation. This is no easy task. Then you go to like uh, the place and you're basically sitting outside in the cold. You just gotta make conversation the whole time. Anyways, needless to say, here's one thing that I've learned. I got to work on this. Maybe if uh, you're a fan of the podcast, you've got a recommendation for me. I think I have to stop pacing around because I'm really getting out of breath. <laughs> um, I, if I'm not great with eye contact, I've discovered this. This is the first time that I've made this discovery. I'm good at eye contact when I'm listening to people. But I've noticed that if people ask me questions and I want to think about what I'm saying, I tend not to look at them so that I can not I guess have their facial input when I'm thinking and I've even noticed that I think I do this on podcasts as well and uh, I think if no, someone's never met you before you just come off as insane which is why like when you're sitting at a bar that's why I need like dates at park benches you know because then you don't have to face the person or sitting on a bar stool you also you can like just face the bartender maybe sitting in a car going for a drive going for a walk I need to, like, start brainstorming side-by-side activities so that I never have to face a person. And then by the time I come up with this list of activities, I'll be I'll be in an ocean of pussy. So I, I just want to let you guys know. I'm sitting down. I'm going back to the drawing board. I'm looking at all the component parts that have been getting in the way of, uh, you know, me, me showing off that charm. And one of them is uh, no more facing people on dates. Well, I'm done with that. I'm going to let them know beforehand. Like, listen, I'd love to take you out. But um, you're going to have to stand on the left side of me because that's the better side of my face. I got the dimple, looks a little bit better. And that way you won't see that I don't make eye contact. All right, that's enough of my shenanigans. Let's get into the news. Um, here's a fun one. You know, they always talk about global warming. They talk about how the world is going to come to an end. We're polluting and we're polluting so much. It's, it's over for us. I mean, we keep uh, using these fossil fuels and having economic development and uh, fueling people coming out of poverty and we continue to uh, have economic growth that might lead to other developments and technological things that we can never think of, we better stop this. We can't be burning these fossil fuels, having economic development, automating tasks that are currently, we gotta be afraid of automation. If these robots start taking our jobs and making things that were once expensive and unavailable, just readily available, you know, we might progress as a society. We gotta get in the way of this economic development. We gotta shut down these economies. We gotta make sure, especially the poor countries, we gotta make sure that they're not using fossil fuels. We only want a couple development countries. We don't want everyone in the world to possibly overcome the hardships of nature and then start, you know, working on other tasks. That's not what we want. It's not like civilization was based off the fact that at some point, you know, certain people were able to Force other people to farm enough for them that they could just sit in their house and think about other shit. And then, since they weren't just breaking brack- their backs farming, they started coming up with art and uh, you know just developing society. Nope, we gotta we gotta shut this thing down. We gotta get off fossil fuels, put an end to this economic development, and uh, really reconsider what we're doing as people. You know, let's um let's not go back to the stone ages, but let's stop the development. Let's stop it right now. Things might get too good. And so let's wean ourselves off the fossil fuels in the name of uh, global warming, because we're all sure that not only is the, 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 the world overheating, but it's clearly the result of man, and it's clearly happening at such alarming rates that if we don't stop it immediately, we don't cut out all fossil fuels, it's gonna be over. We're not gonna make it. Well, and this is something we did a Rob's Newsroom on years ago, but scientists have thought that perhaps the pollution in the air actually reflects sunlight back at the uh, sun. And if it wasn't for that pollution in the air, reflecting sunlight back at the sun, perhaps the planet would be even warmer. In fact, maybe... We've saved our planet because of this pollution. I've also heard that perhaps there would have been a global cooling event, which is the entire opposite of what I'm saying right now. But I think it just brings us to they don't fucking know. And so articles came out this year that there might be dangerous levels of CO3 because of the lack of pollution. You hear that? The lack of pollution because so many people weren't commuting to work has actually created a dangerous environment of O3. So, you know, all this talk that we've heard about CO2... That, that That's nothing compared to uh, these O3. I think O three is nitrous oxide levels. And this is from SciTech Daily. The headline was potentially damaging surface ovum levels rose in COVID lockdown. And then RT, which might have the world's best news or worst news, uh, pollution cools the planet. Pandemic-induced lockdown raised global temperatures in 2020, and someone's got to get that Greta Thunberg chick out there, just you know, telling us we you gotta, everyone's got to get outside, you know, drive around in circles, start farting into the wind. We gotta feed more beans to cows because unless we start getting some more noxious gases into the into the world, we're gonna end up with more sunlight here, which just brings me to the fact. Nobody fucking knows, and if you want to talk about scientists not fucking know, I want to read you a quote that I saw from none other than Fauci that I really enjoyed. He said, Fauci, that two masks are likely more effective. Now, how is two masks being more effective than one mask, something that we're just leaving up to likely? You would think, hey... We're uh, we're the American government. We got to listen to the scientists. And because we're the American government and we've got resources far superior than any individual, any company, any person, we've got more foresight, more scientists and more abilities to sit down and Start figuring out solutions that everyone should listen to, you'd run the experiments. Something as simple of is one mask better than two masks? I feel like I could have solved this one in the 8th grade. You know, in the 8th grade, we had to do science fair, which is really fucking stupid and annoying. I had no interest in science. You know what I did? Every single year, I did the exact same um, experiment, which was... Um, does caffeine help plants grow more? And every single year the day before (laughs) it was due, I would take two plants and I'd take one plant and I'd start cutting at it and I would take pictures as if it was from week two, week three, week four, week five, and by week five the plant would be dead. And I would say that coffee was bad for plants. Was coffee bad for plants? No, I was doing what Fauci was doing. I was just making it up. I was just taking pictures of a dead plant because I gave it a haircut and then claiming that I'd run this experiment over the course of two months and I would paste it on that stupid poster board. I'd write the dumb headlines, and you know, I'd hand it in and get my B. And that—that's basically my entire academic career. Um, but how is Fauci, this guy that they're telling us that we need to listen to, that it comes down uh, likely might help? So you're not running an experiment. You're not going to test like this. Does not sound like the world's most difficult thing to test whether or not two masks are better than like how soon till they tell us like six masks, T- six masks, and everyone's got to go to the pet store and buy one of those goldfish bowls and put it on the top of your face, and uh, you should fill it with water and then duct tape it, and then get a hose that goes from your mouth so that everything's being. I'm basically describing an upside down. Bong that everyone should wear an upside down bong on their head with goldfish. That might actually be pretty cool. The, the goldfish head bong party. Um, maybe we'll do it as part of summer porch tour. The next time that we do the um, smoke out bug out, maybe we should do a smoke out bug out winter edition. Maybe if I go out to uh, Colorado and we get another ski run in, COVID pending, then I'll do a maybe we'll do a West Coast. We'll do a West Coast uh, run your mouth, smoke out, bug out. And I don't know where I'm going from there, but guys, guess what? I've got more episode for you. I didn't just try and get on this thing to tell you about um, you know striking out on a date. That's not what this run your mouth is for. I've got a number of guests coming up. All right, welcoming back to the show. We have at never a simp. Go follow him at never a simp. I uh, I felt that after our financial discussion last week, and he gave us all the insights because he actually knows things. Uh, there were some financial topics this week. I was curious to get your insight on, so thank you for making some time for us and coming back on the show.
1: Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me back on.
0: So one of the things, and I, I think we can definitely give a short answer to this and then get into some of the other topics from this week. I, I had one listener just hit me up that he felt like we were trashing the market function of shorting. Um, I responded to him, at least on you know Twitter, to say, I don't think that we were trash, trashing shorting. I understand that shorting should exist. We were more just saying, hey, look how fun this is that this one hedge fund totally ate it. Um, But I was looking to see if maybe you could give us just a quick, you know, one minute answer on why the ability to short stuff is actually good for the market and is kind of a natural function.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are um, even some conservative, conservatives who will tell you that shorting is, you know, whatever, like uh, shouldn't be allowed because, oh, you know, um, you're betting against American companies or you're betting against, uh, you, you know, you're depriving them of capital or whatever else. But I do think that's like a very simplistic and like nationalistic take. and doesn't understand basic economics. The reality of shorting is that if you feel that a stock is overvalued, it actually does make sense financially to short it. Um, simply because, like you know, it's a better allocation of resources to, to put that money into something else. Like if you think a company is significantly overvalued and it's not going to be putting that money to good use, then you know you sh- that money should allocate elsewhere. So shorting is a natural uh, market function to, um, you know, over in the market or too many investors piling into one stock or whatever the case. But it's a very natural market function. If you think something is overvalued, like if, if you see a Ferrari and it's being sold for you know five dollars you buy it because you think it's undervalued if you see a pen that's being sold for seven million dollars you're probably not going to buy it because like, it's probably overvalued right it's just a natural market function all
0: right fair enough and then the other thing is i uh, i saw my favorite uh website kind of for um following wall street is called wall street on parade and uh, am i coming through clearly all right by the way yeah i can hear you bro can you hear me yeah i can hear you a hundred percent okay um My favorite website for this stuff is Wall Street on Parade. And they were talking about, they were the first ones to report on it, that for all the talk about how it was the retail investors that brought down GameStop, they seem to have the early insight that they actually thought that it was more institutional investors. uh, And they were saying that JP Morgan was actually a big player in it. This week it came out, it was actually just today that another hedge fund I think made like 700 million dollars. Yep, 700 million dollars. So, did we somewhat all get that story wrong that it was the retail investors that you know really um, blew up that short position that they had that um, Melvin had? Just I mean, to yes, give the so, clarification, yes, yes,
1: and, yes and no. I do think that there is an element like to say that it was um, um, strictly inst- uh, retail investors that blew up the position is entirely wrong, but I do think that, um. I do think that a lot of these institutional players essentially saw what was happening with GameStop, and they saw that it was already overvalued, and they saw it was you know primarily going to go up even more because of like you know the, the ideology of a lot of these people that were going along. So they jumped back into that position. And they said we might as well go long too because there's nothing to lose here. It's unlikely it's going to go down because how adamant these people are about continuing to buy it and not selling it, right? So I do think it's wrong to say that like you know um, retail investors are the only reason that you know that um, short squeeze happened. But it's entirely incorrect also to just suggest that um that they weren't like the catalyst. Cause I think they were primarily the catalyst. Although that, that might be a bias towards like narratives because our, our brains are hardwired to like understand narratives better. And it is a cooler narrative to suggest that like, Oh, a bunch of these retail investors were pissed off and they wanted to get back to wall street and say, so piled into the stock and made them lose hundreds of millions dollars. It's not entirely accurate, but I do think that, you know, it is like the fundamental basis from which we can you know operate from.
0: Okay and um, to your eye, I, I you know a simple Google search probably would have given me the answer on this, but I didn't look it up. In terms of like the total amount of money invested in the stock market, what percentage of that is
1: retail investors versus your institutional players? Um, well it's two, it's two separate questions. if you're looking at individual users who are um, retail investors, it's a higher percentage now than ever. I mean it's got be it's got to be like you know, I, I would imagine probably like 20 to 30 percent. Or you know, retail investors, but if you're looking at the actual amount of money, like well then retail investors still make up you know I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's in the single digits, potentially in the low single digits, because like these institutional players have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to play with, and you need hundreds of millions of retail investors to you know to match that. So in terms of like dollar amount, yes, retail investors are still in an extremely small part of the market.
0: Okay, which brings me to my next question, which is, uh, it, it was really just kind of floated in the headlines that someone on the Wall Street Bets page hey, said, hey, let's go for silver next. Um, And what's interesting about silver, and I'll just kind of put forward the question, and then maybe you can rant on this a little bit, uh, is that I have heard in the past that both gold and silver are heavily manipulated markets. On the total conspiracy side, you've even heard that perhaps governments are selling a lot of gold to make it seem like there's more gold that exists in the world. The incentive that they would have to do so is that obviously, you know, they're in the game of currency and they want to pretend like their currency is a value. And so they don't want you to go look at gold and see that it's worth astronomically more and would signal kind of the dollar depreciating. Um, And that also there are a lot more derivative contracts than possibly actually exists of these metals. Um, Now, I don't think that the retail investors, as you just said, have enough power to possibly crack the fraud that might exist in those markets. But that headline was in the news this week. And so
1: I hand that topic over to you okay well i'm gonna be honest with you. i can't really speak to any of the conspiracy stuff but i would totally believe it one thing i will say is that gold is definitely not a free market because a lot of gold comes from africa and east asia and um well parts of asia anyway and these are these are places that are uh, you know heavily influenced by political corruption you know obviously we all know about the stereotype of like an african dictator that hoards his uh, his country's precious metals and his country's natural resources so to suggest that there's like a pure free market in uh, precious metals is entirely incorrect because of like the nature of like where they come from um you can the same for oil, by the way, like not at all a free market because like it's uh, subject to a lot of manipulation by OPEC and by South- the Saudis and et cetera. So, um, yeah, to say it's a free market is entirely incorrect, but like I, I can't really speak to any of the, the conspiracy stuff, but I wouldn't be shocked. Like, you know, the government has done worse things like today. Than, done, than what you just mentioned about selling gold to uh, keep the price artificially low. But, you know, I can't really speak to that.
0: But, okay, I think one of the things that's worth uh, mentioning, and I, I'm not an expert in this. I heard this story once when I was working in a hedge fund and didn't really read about it. But at one point, I believe the Hunt brothers did notice that the silver contracts, um, it, you know, didn't represent, I guess, enough of actual physical silver being in the world. And so they started cornering the market and then, uh, basically, the U.S. government changed, uh, I guess, the capital requirements on those contracts or their ability to buy more of the contracts and their bet was actually right, um, except that the government then changed the rules on them and they kind of their entire position just bottomed out. Uh, can you tell us
1: that story? Because I don't even know if I have that right yeah you have it pretty much right. Essentially, what happened was that there were there were um, two active managers who like essentially saw a discrepancy between the amount of gold uh, gold and silver contracts out in the world and the amount of physical gold and silver that they estimated was out there. And so they they, um, they saw a market uh, market opportunity. And like when they started when they um saw this, the price of gold and silver obviously started to dip vary. And what happened was that the government changed capital requirements, like you said about um, regarding option contracts. They did this in, in all of North America, I believe, and Western Europe. And this was back when that was pretty much the entire financial market. Now it's like a lot of Asia as well. But this is back when Europe and America were pretty much like ninety percent of it, um, and so that caused the price to artificially raise again. These guys essentially got screwed over because like they did find a discrepancy, like financial discrepancy, but it was like just um, it was kind of you know blown up by the government, not too unlike what we saw last week. So
0: yeah. So is there, uh, I guess, potential in the silver or gold market that people could either go after so many physical products that it became you know, that they ruin GLD or some of the other derivatives or some of the futures contracts? Or is the market just too large that that's not even a possibility?
1: Um, I, the market for silver is about 1.3 trillion. I know the, for gold, it's much larger. It's gotta be like, I don't, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's something like 20 trillion. So I do, I do suspect that it's a little too large to be um, subject to manipulation. However, I do think it's possible like over the years, like, you know, like the, the government potentially has had like 50, 60 years to, um, manipulate this market. So I don't think it's entirely off the, off the table that like, um, that there, that there is, um, significant manipulation and, you know, not at all a free market within precious metals because of government incentives.
0: Got you. All right. And two more uh, quick questions for you. And I got to say, I almost like a guest telling me, Hey, I only got 15 minutes. I feel like I'm running a real news show. We're fucking cranking through it. No fat on this bone. Uh, (laughs) One of the the topics I love this week was apparently Elon Musk, most of his profits are not coming from selling actual cars. The money that he really makes is that um, essentially... Uh, if you're selling, if you're General Motors and you're selling your oil cars or your cars that run off gasoline, um, you have to go buy these energy efficient credits. So every time Elon Musk creates a car, even if he he sells it at a loss which he does, the government gives him this, you know, energy credit that he's then able to sell to General Motors, and then he ends up making the money from General Motors, which firstly, it already kind of sounds like a scam. What's to keep me from creating? You know, uh, fucking electric cars out of, you know, those old radio flyer things um, with the four wheels that are on the metal. Maybe I get it to run off a single battery pack. I can label it a car, get that credit, and just sell it. The point being, from a capitalist perspective, this guy's not really engineering some incredible product that's moving us forward. He's really just capitalizing on, you know, the government misallocation of resources that they're willing to create a profit incentive for not actually creating a better product. Like, in other words, he's not really doing anything for any of us. He's just figured out a good gripe in the system to get some government money.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting uh, topic. Let me start from the beginning. So basically, certain U.S. states award regulatory credits to automakers for selling electric vehicles. Automakers acquire these, uh, like a minimum number of these credits to comply with regulatory requirements. These credits can then be bought and sold essentially on the open market. So an automaker that doesn't sell enough electric cars can buy credits from automakers that do. And, um, in order to, in order to actually be re- uh, be licensed to sell and buy um, electric vehicles in a lot of states you have to have a minimum number of, uh, of these credits from the from each individual state or from the federal level I don't know how it works but I mean it's total mar- market manipulation it's actually incredible but let me just dive into the numbers a little bit so in 2020 Tesla's revenue was 31 billion dollars all right? how um it made about five percent of that revenue from selling these credits, so it was about one point five billion dollars. Tesla's profit was about seven hundred and thirty million dollars, so it's about two and a half percent. however, you take away the you take away the one point five billion from the um um from the regulatory credit selling and it's in the red by about seven hundred minus seven hundred fifty million right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's incorrect. Like, you know, when I was, when I was um, reading about this, like on Twitter and stuff, like a lot of people had the impression, like, oh, most of Tesla's revenue comes from this. Like, no, only about 5% of Tesla's revenue comes from this. But of course it should be zero. So,
0: Oh, it's only 5% from the credits because the article that I had seen was saying that all of the profits were from the credit. Outside of that, he's selling his, his cars
1: at a loss. No, no, no. The revenue, five uh, percent of the revenue comes from the credits. Yes, he would be in the red if it weren't for the credits. The profit and revenue are obviously, yeah, different.
0: Got it. Okay. Make all right. That that I, I understand that, and because his profit margin might only total, let's say, four percent, which means absent of the credit, you know, he's not making money.
1: Yeah. In addition to the fact that he's like selling the cars for a loss, he also has enormous fixed cost um, requirements. He's like, building different factories and all these other things. So like, there, there's enormous fixed costs that go into the business like that, and he has enormous R&D costs because Tesla does all sorts of crazy things with like, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, trying to make their um, trying to make their cars closer to, like a a software product than an automated product. So.
0: All right. So last question for you, and I'm gonna get this in within that 15 minute time frame. I I just did the biting the bullet podcast, which was a really fun podcast, and he's also a financial guy, and he brought to my attention something that I'd seen in the headlines. Um, you know, at the beginning of the coronavirus, but I hadn't heard about since, which is once the moratorium on evictions goes away, that that's when we might see a real recessionary environment because there's a lot of possibly, you know, defaults or other things that haven't come due yet. Um, that once they do, especially in commercial real estate, if there's a lot of evictions, there might even be you know mortgage-backed assets similar to the subprime mortgage crisis, linked to I guess some of those loans made to commercial real estate people. Talking above my pay grade here, so I'm curious if that's something that you've heard about in your office or some real risk that's you know on the plate of the economy that once these evictions start coming due, uh, you know we're actually going to see. I guess all the negative ramifications from the lack of growth over, you know,
1: this COVID year. Well, yeah, there's two sides of this. So, number one, it's actually like amazing how few Americans buy and how many rent. And actually, one uh, foreign governments are some of the biggest buyers into American real estate. Um, you know that we have, like for example, the re- a lot of the reason why prices in New York and SF are so high for real estate is because China comes up and buys, it, buys a lot of these properties, which artificially drives up the price, right? Um, and then in terms of the like there's actually a startling amount of um, uh, percentage of americans that rent. It's like you know it's got to be like more than 50 percent. i don't know the exact number but in terms of like the eviction crisis you know it's, it's just really hard to get data about it so it's really hard to say like obviously um you know it just logically makes sense like oh people aren't working and so rents need to be paid and so there are a bunch of people are going to get evicted which is going to potentially uh, cause a collapse in the real estate market on the other hand though like if that had happened, it would have happened already, right, is what a lot of people will tell you. It, it isn't as if people have been working for like a year now, right? And it isn't as if the government has been sending out tons of money and it isn't as if like we had a national rent freeze. So it is – I mean it's just – But hard you hard.
0: haven't been able to evict people, so it, it's almost like the losses aren't on the books yet.
1: I mean, you haven't been able to evict people in certain places, you have in others. And like, we haven't, we just haven't seen a major downturn in the real estate market since COVID, since the lockdown started. I mean, we we saw one right at the beginning, but that was just because of like, you know, the market tanked. But like, you know, we haven't seen a huge uh, recession. So it's really hard to say. I wouldn't, I wouldn't lean towards yes, most likely, just because it makes more sense logically. However, it's just hard to get good data on it, you know? That's the only thing.
0: All right. That's uh, all I got for you. I think we got it all within uh, 15 minutes. And, you know, I appreciate the clarification on all these topics. And why don't you plug uh, your Twitter once more for everybody? All right, everyone. It's never
1: a simp. N-E-V-E-R-A-S-I-M-P. Please follow me. And like, yeah, if you ever need financial advice or you just want to talk, please send me a DM. I would love to interact with any of you.
0: All right. You the man. Thanks so much for uh, for doing it again. Thank you, Robbie. Have a good night, bro. All right. Peace. Next guest we have here is Gus uh, Cantivero. I'll never pronounce it. Did I get it right? Yeah, you got it. Fuck yeah, I got it right. If you're not familiar with Gus, he's the uh, director of Detective Active, which is uh, still available on YouTube. It will be one of Hollywood's biggest franchises. For now, yep. it's just a simple sketch about a detective who solves crimes by peeing on corpses. Yep. But at some point in time, it's going to it's gonna be the next Marvel franchise.
2: Absolutely. No, I see big things in the future for Active.
0: Um, And so, you know, you took a break from working on Active. It was a a good project. You're going to come back to it. And you said. Well, it was
2: creatively draining. Like it took a lot out of us to get in the mind of the serial killer and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that's a project you have to step away from now and then.
0: And you can't be working on serious things like that all the time. It drives Uh, you crazy. And you decided to shake it up that you would yep. um, do a little w- bit of work on the side with Scott Horton, maybe mm-hmm. solve the entire war problem, cover that story, mm-hmm. and then we'll do a season two of Detective Active. So why yeah. don't you tell us a little bit about this uh, side project with Scott Horton?
2: Right. Okay. So the um, <laughs> the lighthearted content that uh, I took a break from Active to do. Um, the uh, well-known podcaster, editor-in-chief of Antiwar.com and author Scott Horton, uh, well-known to libertarians out there uh, as one of the most authoritative voices of the anti-war movement, um, had a new book coming out. And at the time when I approached him with the idea of doing this series, it was not, um, the book was not yet even in near of a final shape. So he had basically um, taken upon himself the massive task of rounding up the entire war on terror, the history of the war on terror by the United States, which is a massive undertaking because it encompasses basically the entire world. It's not a, it's not something that happened just in Afghanistan or Somalia or or Yemen, or Iraq. like it, it it happened over many decades, and he traces it back basically to the uh, starting point in the Jimmy Carter administration with the uh, war in Afghanistan uh, against the Soviet Union. And you might think that that is a bit of a stretch to take it back that far, but if you watch the series that we put together, it's going to take you step by step how um, each one of these dominoes that felt caused the next one to happen, leading you up to present day. And, um, we were actually walking down the street one day, you and I, we were in the city. I think we were, we were looking, we were doing active or when we met to talk about doing some stuff together, I told you that I had this idea that I had pitched to Scott Horton. Remember that? That was like two years ago. And, um, you know, it turned out he was actually really receptive to the idea. And the book that he was working on was this authoritative tome of information. And what I wanted to do was something that was kind of like a tag along to to summarize all of the topics and all the subjects that we were dealing with here to make it very shareable, very easily understandable for you and I, the average guy out there. And then to also pull up on your phone when you're standing at the barbecue talking with your dad or your uncle or, you know, family members who, you know, the, the topic of the wars or spying comes up or terrorism. And, you know, you're always going to have that, like, you know, uh, very like pro copper pro military uncle or cousin who 's just like, "No, no, we definitely should have went over there, and you know we don 't regret a thing, even no matter how much it cost, it made us safe. Those are the ones that took down the World Trade Center, and they could be talking about the Taliban or you know any number of people, and you can without a doubt prove that these people are completely different factions, completely different people, completely different tribes." Um, who had nothing to do with nine 11 and yet they're all wrapped up in the same package and it's an extremely damaging thing. And if we don't understand how we got here today, then there's no way to not redo the same mistakes in the future. So Scott was really receptive to the idea. And of course I had, you know, you know, my sense of humor, we did, we did detective active and, you know, I, I laugh at all the slapstick stuff and I propose some, my, some things to make it way more, um, uh, Uh, blue collar, let's say, you know, to make it way more accessible. And he kind of like shut that down a little bit. But I think that what we ended up with is the right package. It's the right way of of presenting this information. And one thing that I'm really proud of is that it actually encouraged Scott to kind of take the manuscript that he had been working on toss it out the window and then restart from the beginning making it more accessible and 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 packaged in the way that we did this video series. So I'm really pleased with the way that it came out.
0: Now I will say I uh, stylistically you nailed it. I I've only watched mm-hmm. the uh, first 3. I'm waiting for the uh the rest of them to come out. I think yep. you sent me the link. I get the inside access yep. for 4, 5 and 6 cuz I'm impatient. Yep. I said right. I w- I want this stuff but um it definitely, you uh, you managed to give to Scott the direction where he slows down. He keeps yeah. it really clear, and it's packaged together. Well, th- there's two things that's great about the packaging. One, it's very focused where you're getting the exact story that's in the headlines. You know what you're watching. You know, hey, I just got to focus for five or six minutes here. And yep. you made it ADD-friendly where you throw in okay. those little graphics and pictures that if you're a moron like me – when you you know you start going, oh, pretty picture. Oh, look, there's the map that he, what he's talking about, which yeah. makes the information a lot more accessible. Uh, from working with Scott, what are some of the uh, firstly, I guess if you can let people know the name
2: of the series and where they
0: can find it.
2: Yep. Very useful information. Yeah. Uh, the name of the book is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terror. And the name of the series is the same name. Uh, and when you pull it up, you'll, you can find it on YouTube by, uh, searching Scott Horton enough already, uh, that should very easily pull it up. Um, his names very easy to spell, um, H-O-R-T-O-N, if you're not familiar with him. And, um, it's been getting some great responses so far. People are really, really receptive and psyched about it, um, you know, just couldn't be happier with the way that it turned out and the way people are receiving it. So what, what are the, uh, what are some
0: of the big takeaways that you had in terms of being able to hang out with Scott, actually listening to him give over all the information? Uh, one of the things I picked up on is it seems like a lot of these presidents, they're, they're somewhat winging really big decisions or they're making them for really personal reasons without a lot of outlook for, Hey, here's like a cohesive foreign policy. Um, and some of the things that he talked about was both stabbing Saddam Hussein in the back in terms of saying we are like, we'll let you go into Kuwait and then immediately saying we have to go to war with him for going into Kuwait and then, you know, telling people, Hey, go uh, start a revolution against him and then just selling him out. And there's a lot of these little instances. Um, but I'll hand the question back to you uh, because you actually spent time with him. You edited it. So you absorb the information more than I did. Oh God, I wish they was true. (laughs) (laughs) Speak to some of like just the, the bigger themes and just overall, you know, narrative of like, here's what they're consistently, you know what I mean? Like they've got some sort of an incentive for making these decisions. So what was kind of your takeaway for, you know, why they're doing these things and what just keeps going wrong?
2: Yeah, well, that's a, that's a huge question. Um, First, to start with, working with Scott was great. We had a blast working on this. Um, The guy's an absolute machine. He's he's an animal. What you hear on the radio and, you know, like his work ethic is just unreal. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I have a pretty strong work ethic, too, and I'll work as long as is necessary. And Scott is, you know, he's definitely one of those people who is the real deal and is as dedicated to the craft of, um, destroying this war machine as, uh, as he portrays on, on the air. So, you know, that was actually pretty cool because I'm, I'm kind of a believer in never meeting your heroes. Um, you know, and I, and I use that word loosely, you know, like, cause, um, we're all kind of like in this together, you know, but, but Scott is, is, uh, is worthy of the title because of the fact that he just throws so much of himself into, uh, into the task. You know, because we're, you know, our movement in liberty is we're unfunded and we're far fewer in number and we don't have the status and the stature to uh, combat these villains around, um, you know, in the upper echelons of society. So we have to just outwork them basically in order to, um, get our message out there. And then even then at that point, you're still fighting against, you know, YouTube or the Facebook, the, the Facebook algorithm, which will punish you just for not following rules or for not, you know, for being, uh, associated with thought criminals, you know, and I tried just posting one of the links when it came out and it got zero reaction and I was really pissed. And I, you know, I post this video up and I'm like, all right, you now big announcement, you know, make you know, this took a year and a half of work and 14 part series and, you know, hours of content here all for free. You know, hundreds of hours of work went into editing and the research and the image uh, um, accumulation. And then you get like two likes on the post and no comments. <laughs> and then you're just like, what happened? And then you even go into the um, the uh, LP Mises Caucus, the uh, Libertarian Party Mises Caucus Facebook group, which has like 17000 members in there. Make a post as well. No reaction. I shared it with uh, Stephen Clyde, who's the editor-in-chief of the Mises Caucus. He made a post, zero response, three likes. And then right next to it is a post that's just a screenshot of a tweet with like 300 and something likes and, and 56 shares and 90 comments. And you're just like, what is going on? And then a little bit of digging and you realize like, oh, the algorithm is just absolutely crushing us here. It's It's picking up on something. It's picking up on the words, the content, something. Um, so we're just constantly battling now, of course, this is a really long, uh, work around your answer, but, um, we had a lot of fun shooting the project and, um, and, uh, I did have to work to get him to slow down because he gets so into the content and there were a n- numerous times where we stopped and discussed whether or not we were going on a tangent that was going to distract us from the ultimate point of talking to your blue-pilled uncle about the about going to war with iran you know like is this going to deter from the main point which is you know um that a war would would drag us into another vietnam would be costly and by the way we don't belong there you know so uh that's really kind of like the ultimate drill down point is that the side effects of all of the wars that we get into end up making us less safe and more poor so um You know, the content is, I think, unimpeachable, which is really what I was trying to go for. Um, You know, we really tried to nail it so that it was all the sources pop up. So you're saying like, you know, the maps come up because we're talking about places where most of us have never been. Um, You know, I've I've been to Asia four times. I've been around the world a little bit, but because of my documentary filmmaking career. But I've never been to the Middle East and I still kind of get the directions backwards sometimes when people say Eastern Syria on the Iraq border. And I have to think like, wait, which side of Iran is that on? You know, like you you—it just doesn't come to your mind rapidly. So putting it in there and just saying like Bagram Air Base and then popping a map in there just to say, here's Bagram with a little circle around it just helps people to ground them and be like, oh, wow, that's like way the hell out there. You know, and it kind of just cements the point like this is on the opposite side of the planet. You can't get any further away from home than Bagram Air Base. And yet it's the size of a city with a KFC and, you know, tens of thousands of people there. Uh, I don't don't know what the number troop numbers are today. I think those numbers are significantly severely reduced, but the base is still there.
0: All right. So next question I have for you is even and this falls into the territory of evil, but. Let's just say that you've got people saying, we need to secure Americans' oil interests. And the only way that we're secure as a country is if we secure these oil interests. And so you know, I got to sell the American people that Saddam's a dictator, but we got to make sure that we're secure, like almost the way you played risk as a kid. There, There are certain really important assets, and if we don't take it from other people, We're not going to have it. And so for our security interests, we've got to make sure that we secure these assets. Let's just shelve that. I don't believe that for one second. You don't believe that for one second. But let's just imagine for a second, at least you can rationalize that. At least we could sit down with someone and they might be able to put forward, hey, if we're not securing these things, China is going to take it. We're going to be in trouble. All right. So let's shelve that. We both agree that that's evil, but at least I can understand why someone might rationally put that forward. What were some of the things that Scott explored where it's straight up, here is someone just doing something evil that they know is doing nothing for nobody, but is just Mm. such a clear case of military industrial complex just either wants the profits or for some other reason. Maybe it's just the ego, the ego of the president that Saddam pissed him off as a dinner party and he's like, that's it. We're going in there. We're going to fuck them up. Were there any incidents that you would say like, this is just clear Evil with yeah. absolutely no rational argument for why anyone would do this.
2: Yeah, no no question. Um, the two big ones that come to mind are um, in I'm, – I'm trying to make sure I get the chapter right uh, because there's 14 chapters, which coincidentally there's 14 chapters in Scott's book. So each era, each president slash war uh, has its own chapter um, with the exception of Iran, which spans multiple uh presidencies and and a couple of others. Um so um I want to say it's in the Clinton video. Did you see the you saw the Clinton one?
0: I made it no I think the Clinton I watched uh, that comes out
2: tomorrow at the time of this recording. That comes out tomorrow. Hell yeah. Okay. So um there's a section in there where they talk about um the blockade on Iraq when they want Saddam to step down and um there's a section from, uh, uh, again, my head's a little bit swimming because we've been covering. I've been, I'm still actually editing some of the final details as these come out. But um, we, we put up an excerpt from one of the books. Oh, it's actually uh, Bush at War uh, by Bob Woodward. And there's, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a section in there where um, they're quoting uh, the, uh, I think it might be the Joint Chiefs, where they're saying, you know, the whole point of the blockade is to prevent them from rebuilding their electrical grid. And if you want to get your electrical grid rebuilt, then you'll get rid of Saddam Hussein, and then we'll help you get your country back in order. But in the meantime, children are starving to death. Children are dying, and there's no water filtration. So you've got regular people, just average people, who don't have the ability to take down the president of the country right these are just they're starving hungry people with no power no weapons nothing not that i want them all to be armed right but i mean like i don't i don't I, just, I don't want armed conflict that's not the point i'm just saying like they don't have the means to do what you're asking and yet what they're trying to do is put such a pathetic stranglehold on them that the people are so desperate that they do the job that the u.s military uh couldn't do, or uh, didn't have the will to do, or just didn't follow through on doing. They wanted it done for them so that they weren't seen as invaders, right? It's a very, very complicated situation, but there was no benefit to this because when Saddam was removed and you had the depathification of Iraq, all that did was start off a a chain of secular conflict and terrorism. So it didn't even give them the result that they were so confident that they were going to get. You, you follow right. us so far, right? am I making this clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's and also then,
0: right, a very weird way to make friends, which is we're oh, going to yeah. make your lives so miserable that you're going to go kill that person. Yeah. And then and then you're going to look at us like we're helping you out. Exactly, like, imagine, yeah. Yeah, that just doesn't even make sense. It's like, if anything, you come in with more help than what the other guys do and you go, oh, we better go with this side. At least they're helping me out. It's very rare you go, I can't, I can't think of an example on, on the top of my head, but if I thought about it, there's a joke in there because the the logic just doesn't add up.
2: No, it's ridiculous. You work <laughs> on that one. And I'll tell you about Yemen, which, uh, you know, our, Dave Smith talks about all the time. The, the war in Yemen is a big, big deal, which uh, there was actually breaking news on that this morning uh, about Biden um, kind of withdrawing a little bit of support from Saudi Arabia on that one. So we may actually see some developments on that one pretty soon. Um <clears throat> And there is a Yemen uh, chapter and a Yemen uh, uh, video, which we may have to update the ending in order to get it up to date with what just happened today. Um, so it's just kind of interesting how we were working on this for a year and a half. And then once we get to the release date, <laughs> and all of a sudden stuff starts happening. And then um, <clears throat> so in, in Yemen, of course, you have a sectarian conflict there with the Houthis and and then the Saudi back faction, which uh, just wants to wipe out all of the rebel factions in the country. And it is completely backed, armed, and funded by U.S. military hardware. And when you get to the Yemen chapter, you're going to see I even put photos in there of Saudi soldiers wearing American fatigues just with a Saudi flag slapped onto the Velcro patch. It's And then I have them side by side. I can show you because Scott even says like this is all American hardware. And I show you the F-15 and, and that it's made by, you know, an American arm manufacturer. And then the, uh, Sikorsky helicopter with the Saudis getting out of the helicopter. And then the American, uh, Marine in, or in Afghanistan side by side with the Saudi soldier wearing the same, even the same, uh, desert camo. So it just shows you that everything that they have is, is given to them, sold to them, but still supplied by the U S So we have this sort of like one step removal to say that we're not the ones bombing Yemen, but at the same time, everything that's happening there is with American hardware. And it's
0: almost like we're directly profiting from it because we sell them the military gear and it's like, oh great, they're starving and killing Yemen people that we can sell them more military gear.
2: Yes, And, and the bombing that's going on, they're targeting schools, they're targeting electrical generation, they're targeting water filtration plants. They're targeting farms with horses and goats on it because this is a food supply. So they're they're literally just trying to make it so miserable that the people just surrender. But as we've seen in the Gaza Strip, like that doesn't work. Like you it does, no one ever just like gets beaten so badly that they just learn to love their their master. I mean, that's that's like straight out of 1984. It well, I guess we work. did it to Japan. Hmm? I guess we kind of did it to Japan. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose it's a, it's a manner of speaking. Um, I mean, they, they did, they were forced to surrender. And then later um, the rebuilding efforts and the uh, modernization of their industry did bring us into uh, economic partnership. But you see the thing that actually made us friends was the economic partnership. It was the wealth. right? So right. it wasn't, it wasn't the force that made them love the United States. It was the economic rebuilding later.
0: All right, so this is all on the, uh, I guess, cartoonishly evil side. Yeah. What would you say, um, it, more often than not, these blunders in these wars, what's the actual incentives of the elites? Is it that they're trying to secure critical resources? Are they just going to war because their friends are making profits? Um, what are some of the big things Scott was talking about in terms of this seems to be you know, the real motivation of the elites that are making these decisions?
2: Well, we don't really... The point of the video series is not to um, is not to like get inside the heads of these people and then and then uh, explain their motivations because I feel like that's actually irresponsible to um, journalistically irresponsible to get inside someone's head and and then um, you know, psychologize them and try to say, you know they're doing this because of X. And I kind of feel like that's where you get into like the conspiracy theory angles of things, starting to ascribe motive to people. Um, and, and that's why it's so popular to theorize about why or if 9-11 was allowed to happen because there was benefits that happened afterward. I try to remain in the realm of what I can prove so that it undermines trust in the regime. Um where i am it, you know of course i i have my own questions and theories about you know motivations behind because i i know without a doubt they did know that that the planning for 9-11 was going to happen and we don't cover the the, the run-up to the 9-11 conspiracy uh, you know uh, event in in the move in the series that's i'm just bringing this up as an example you know like we know that there were things that they knew about intelligence reports and all this sort of stuff and and that they they basically tripped on their own feet but The lead up to it is plain as day because you can see the chain of events that happened with Jimmy Carter uh, getting into Afghanistan to help the Mujahideen repel the Soviet Union and then uh, uh, Ronald Reagan coming in on the heels of that. And saying how, you know, the United States had a, uh, the Vietnam syndrome and that, you know, we needed to, to learn to love war again uh, so that we could get back into the fight, basically, and take our rightful space that was vacated by the Soviet Union uh, to make sure that no other superpower would be able to take that space and fill that vacuum. But then what ends up happening is that you you become buddies with Saudi Arabia by buying their loyalty you set up military bases there, and you have this this young man named uh, Osama bin Laden, who is a military leader in the Mujahideen, who happens to be a Saudi Arabian, and he resents the fact that the United States has military bases on their holy land. And then the the uh, early um, uh, early uh, organization of Al Qaeda, before they were Al Qaeda, uh, they started to plot attacks. Then Al Qaeda became. Al Qaeda. And then they were known for for carrying out attacks against United States targets, taking down um, buildings and and bombing the U.S. coal. And uh, we cover all of the different events that we know were done by Al Qaeda. And so when they tried to bomb the World Trade Center the first time in 1993, it was known it was done by Al Qaeda because the FBI had infiltrated the cell and had had given them uh, an informant bomb maker by the name of Ahmad, uh, Ahmad Salam, who then recorded all the conversations with his FBI contact. And then when he was removed because they he would not um, cooperate with the FBI and giving them real bomb material, he said he wanted to make a fake bomb. And they said, no, we want to give them real bomb material so that we have enough to take them down. And then when he refused, then they gave them the real bomb maker, Ramzi Youssef. And we again, every time we show... The picture and the name, the mugshot, the, the news story from the original newspaper, screenshots of the story so that you know we're not making this stuff up. We're not just telling you a story. I'm throwing up source after source after source so that you know this is not just a tale. I'm not just making claims. This is what happened. So when, that, when 9-11 really did happen, that, that awful, horrible tragedy, it was predictable, and if we had just minded our own business and stayed out of other people's affairs, it is very, very convincing that nine 11 never would have happened. And then neither would have the Iraq or Afghan wars.
0: All right. Fair enough. Uh, so before I let you go, anything else you want people to know about the, uh, the series?
2: Uh I mean, it's, um, it's a really worthwhile effort, you know? And, um, you know, we're not selling it. I'm not getting paid for this. This was completely a volunteer effort. It's just some, it was a labor of love. So, um, you know, definitely go and check it out. Throw some support, you know, try to share it around as much as you can. Um, go check out the Scott Horton show. And uh, I think that's pretty much all I have to share.
0: Hell yeah. I have to uh, actually buy both of his books and read them because I haven't yet. And yeah. uh, this 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 first one, especially watching your videos, I was getting excited. I was like, I want this knowledge. I, I gotta yeah, I got to go get that cool.
2: book it's it's um it's a lot of stuff and it's like you know it's it's public knowledge like it's the history of the world but when you watch it it's it's the uncartoon version of what happened you know so it's like it's not what you hear when you watch cnn or fox news or wherever you know this is the, and in particular over time over decades you know like i i was um i was 18 when or 19 when 9 11 happened and uh you know, it was in a really, really emotional day and time and very like emotionally manipulative thereafter. And <clears throat> when, when all that happened, it was like, yeah, like I wanted retribution, you know, like I wanted vengeance at the time. And then later you realize like this, this version of what we're getting now, like in Iraq, especially like the invasion of Iraq, this is that was right around the time that I started to turn libertarian. Um, I hadn't been exposed to that information up until that point. And, um, you know, after the invasion of Iraq and I gave it a couple of years and I started thinking like none of what they promised is happening. And none of the, ver- the, the version, none of the reasons that they gave for why this is happening is, is melding, me- uh, is, is meshing with what's going on. You know, like if this is what you wanted, if you wanted to just like get, um, the evildoers, then we, you know, Osama bin Laden is over there, like get him. He's not in Iraq and, and, um, and Iraq has nothing to do with Al Qaeda or Afghanistan or the Taliban for that matter. Like these are completely different people. So, and then Dude, the mass I remember, destruction stuff, you know, the I was maybe like 14, 15 when,
0: when that was going on. I remember when they were, when they said they were going on, I was like, what, that doesn't even make sense. And I remember writing a paper in college yeah. that it was, it was two things. One, I remember writing about, taking out Iraq makes no sense because Iraq and Iran are natural enemies. You're just going to have a problem with Iran. And I was 14. So, you know, I mean, now you could take the approach. We don't have a problem with Iran, but you know, the country does want to go to war with them. But you know, yeah. anyways, as a 14 year old, it was pretty obvious that if I, yeah. uh, if you're concerned with Iran taking out Iraq doesn't make sense. And right. then the other part, I have to go find the essay, but I feel like I was also talking about that. The war cost would lead to inflation, but that might, wow, I, 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 that. I feel like I might add something along those lines in there or that wow. it just didn't make sense but I might be uh rewriting history of what my history paper was actually about
2: <laughs> well i'm I'm not I'm not Gene Epstein but I'll give you an a on that paper thank you I appreciate it all right
0: dude <laughs> thanks so much for uh for joining us and uh hopefully I'll be out and I'm hoping I might do uh another trip out to Colorado in April we'll see I'm hoping to Hell get yeah, that together
2: uh, oh we can we can still ski in April that'll be good
0: yeah. Spring. I've done spring skiing. I've never done the it out great. West, but spring skiing yeah. can be great. You add in your t-shirt, warm weather. <laughs> it's nice. That's right. All right, man. Thanks for this. This is great. All right. Peace, dude. Thank you. All right. Bye.